You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome to the world of privilege. Yes, I know that we're doctors, we drive around in flashy cars, we drink too much expensive wine, and we're all well-entrenched members of the 1%. Well, at least most of us would like to be, but I don't think we are these days. Um, But that's not what I mean. What I mean is we're in the world of privilege because we have a voice. Certainly on this show we have a voice, uh, and um, I want to use my voice, our voice today, to talk to you about groups of people in the community that don't have a voice. Well, actually, they do have a voice, but do we listen? And I think the problem is that we don't actually listen. So in today's show, we've got Dr Perry Parton and myself, and we're going to look at two groups in the community that are idealised as stereotypes, but in reality aren't listened to much when it comes to mental health issues. And I'm talking about mothers and babies. Later on, we'll also be joined by uh, Terry Smith, the new CEO of Panda, and later on by uh, phone, we'll be joined by Professor Louise Newman from the Centre for Women's Mental Health at the Women's Hospital. Professor Newman will also help us give a voice to the experience of another group in our global community without a voice, refugee children. One of the real tragedies to come from the Syrian exodus this week is that it took death of a three-year-old child to make everybody notice. So join us for the next hour for this and many other equally cheery topics on this week's Hour of Empowerment, Radiotherapy. Dr Perry Partham, how are you? Good morning, I'm well, thank you. What have you been up to? So I've been listening to the news over the last week and I suppose me, um, I and many other people noticed that it was Are You OK Day on Thursday and this is an Australian initiative actually which um, happened to coincide with national Oh, International Worldwide Suicide Prevention Day. So it was a great opportunity for all people around Australia and throughout the world to focus on having meaningful conversations with people they care about, about how they're going and, and how they're feeling. And I thought I might talk a little bit about what one group did on that day. They took the opportunity to launch what they call a national action plan to try to transform our understanding of suicide and and to hopefully prevent suicide. They've got a very ambitious plan to prevent suicide completely in Australia. So they've got this... They've got a plan which has several different tranches to it, but I might start perhaps by talking a little bit about their rationale. And I think that what they're worried about is that there's a lack of understanding of this phenomenon and a lack of research into it that's kind of coordinated and properly targeted. So I might talk briefly about what they talked about. So they talked about um, the fact that suicide, which was at a very high rate in about 15 years ago, um, 15 per 100,000 in Australia, which was astronomical, has actually fallen by nearly a third in the intervening 15 years, and we don't know why. And I think that they try to position the phenomenon of suicide sort of more broadly than just in terms of mental health. They talk about it as a sort of social phenomenon, and they use a couple of different bits of information to substantiate that. One of them is that, in fact, the suicide rate in many countries relates to sort of broader social and economic events. In fact, whenever there's an increase in the rate of unemployment by about 1%, the rate of suicide increases by about 0.8%. So they use this statistic and also sort of increases in suicide rates overseas in places like the USA and in Greece. Isn't there also a a decrease in suicide rate during wartime that's been documented? Yeah, that's right. So, And there there sometimes is an increase in rates when things like 
wars happen or natural disasters happen and there's lots of theories about why that might be. So but there's more social cohesion. And yeah, yeah, that's right. So people feel more connected to each other and I think that's one of the things why, one of the reasons why Are You OK Day is so important. Because it's about promoting connectedness and social cohesion. Exactly. They also talked about how there are some geographic clusters of suicides. Even in Australia we see that people in rural areas are more vulnerable and then there are demographic clusters like um, teenagers who are LGBTI identified and people who have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage are often much more vulnerable to suicide and the suicide rates in those groups are much higher. So rather than focusing just specifically on you know, what, what I'm more familiar with, which is the context of mental illness, the people in Suicide Prevention Australia want to kind of have a society-wide approach um, I think they want to bring it um, more broadly, um, research into understanding these groups of people, but also um, bringing that research into practice, so targeting people who are most at risk in a bit more of a creative way. So I thought it was a really interesting initiative. So this is, this is more of a public mental health approach? Exactly. About targeting communities rather than individual clinical work? where we would see somebody in our consulting room. Yeah, that's right. So raising community awareness, um, I think improving linkages in communities, all those things and perhaps reducing the stigma of mental illness, I think, is the focus of what they wanted to do. And I think, speaking as a psychiatrist, I'm much more familiar with treating um, people with a mental illness who have thoughts about suicide, but I think it's, it's really important to take a step back and think about the broader social context that we're working in. Mm, which uh, actually segues into another interesting uh, study that I found online that um, actually came from a, a New South Wales uh, study. So it may or may not be directly applicable here because our emergency departments and mental health services interface a bit differently. But um, what they found was, was a surprisingly negative, angry and irritated attitude um, towards patients who attempted suicide and who uh, turn up to um, emergency departments. Yeah, when you mentioned this off-air, I was really surprised because in the context whenever I've worked, there's always been a mental health nurse in the emergency department 24 hours a day in all the hospitals I've ever worked in, and I can't imagine that that um, mental health nurse would then approach patients with that kind of attitude. But maybe when there isn't that immediate mental health response, people who don't really know how to respond get frightened and the response maybe sometimes is to reject that person or, or try to rebuff them. And, and it then becomes a barrier for people asking for help. Yeah. Okay, found another interesting bit of uh, research on uh, during the week from the uh, ever-excellent conversation website. And uh, what that looked at, it wasn't a bit of empirical research, but it was a report from of someone's empirical research, but really got me thinking that um, fear-based health information makes new mothers anxious. And it, it talked about the way of, of delivering health information. And uh, once I started thinking about it, of course, it makes a lot of sense that we all have our own response to anxiety that we might get in a fight or flight response or we might freeze. Mm. But but if people get anxious enough about information, it actually interferes with their ability to process what they're hearing and people will respond in characteristic ways. We only have to look at the, the climate change debate mm. um, in the community where people... 
deal with the fear of what might happen by rejecting that, uh, the ch- the, that climate change is actually happening at all. And I think this sort of process is probably happening in a lot of health areas. I'm worried about getting cancer, so I'm not going to go for a checkup. Yeah, that's right. I'm worried that I might have heart disease, so I'm not going to go and get my cholesterol measured or my blood pressure checked. So was this study actually saying that women were frightened of That women were out? frightened, yes. Okay. And, and that, that information was delivered, and they gave an example of, of SIDS, uh, that it was delivered in a way that took the information out of context mm. and that uh, people became increasingly anxious about... Uh, having their baby sleep in their bed even once mm. as if the baby would die for SID, from yeah. SIDS. Whereas, in fact, it is a risk factor, but the overall risk is still very low. Yeah, okay. Fear and guilt, they're, yeah, they're, fear they're and a powerful combination. Fear and guilt, it's a very powerful conversation. In fact, it's what keeps us psychiatrists busy. <laughs> <really>. <laughs> I think that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. What else keeps us busy is um, yours and my day job, which mm. is uh, in the perinatal mental health area. Yes, that's right. And uh, that uh, brings us to uh, today's guest, um, who is uh, Terry Smith, the new CEO of uh, Panda. Welcome, Terry. Thank you. Tell me what panda is, apart from a cuddly bear. What yeah. else is it? Oh, pandas, panda is um, something way more important than cuddly bears. Panda um, it's a, it's a, is the abbreviation, and it's much more convenient. But, but the, long, the long title, and I think it's really important to say it out loud, is Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia. So you've already been talking about anxiety this morning, and it's an important, important term to use uh, linked right in there with, with new mums. And, and what does perinatal mean? We should be asking Dr Perry Parton. Oh, OK, I can chip in there. If you'd like me to. So it's any period, um, basically from uh, the start of pregnancy through to the delivery and uh, and then up until about the end of the first year of life. That's how we've defined it in the services I've worked in. Yeah, that's, so that's exactly how, how, how we're using it. Of course, it's a term that um, people are still, still still getting used to, I think, and, uh, in fact, Panda has recent, recently very cleverly kept that acronym but changed our name. So we used to talk about post, post and antenatal depression. So, oh, okay. Um, so as as the if they were different. Yeah, we thought we were very clever, just keeping that keeping that acronym in there, not 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 to lose that. But um, what was important about that name change as well was we've brought anxiety into into mm-hmm. the name, which which tells us a lot about our understanding now about um, mental health <coughs> in that perinatal period. We've talked about, and I think a lot of a lot of people will be be aware of and comfortable with the idea of postnatal depression. That's that's probably the thing we know about. We even have what we call PND Awareness Week later later in the year coming up in in November, mm-hmm. but. Uh, in fact, we know, and, and I know, but very you're well, well aware that uh, anxiety is such a crucial, crucial component of that mental health spectrum. Well, that's right. In fact, I think anxiety in pregnancy is more common mm. than depression. So, and, and it, it's a big risk factor for other things that happen down the line. So it's important to focus on it. I think. And this is a problem I see in my patients when um, I say, look. Um, you know, you've got postnatal depression. And I said, but I don't feel sad, I feel anxious. Mm. But of course we're talking about depression with a capital D, not depression with a little mm. d, the way people use the word every day. I had a bad day at work and I feel really depressed. Yep. Mm. But we're talking about the proper noun, which is a, a clinical syndrome. And the main feature in the perinatal period, as you said, is anxiety. Mm. And I think, um, indeed, lots of women aren't, aren't expecting, and most people aren't expecting a postnatal uh, mental, mental illness, but but that that 
early early period during the pregnancy um, there's still a lot of a lot of pressure around that being an exciting exciting life-changing time and um, I think people are very often blindsided by by that that emotional response the mental health response they're having to to that the, to the pregnancy and it's so important early intervention look if we have it's a, it's a message I, I say over and over and over it's uh, clearly it's it's part of the value of having a conversation like this today that uh, the importance of early intervention the importance of actually acknowledging that experience and and being ready to get to 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 say something out loud and get get some treatment is just so crucial. Yeah, that's true. Excuse now, me. Now, the panda mascot is a, a very cute little, as you'd expect, a very cute little panda. But uh, I guess what I've noticed is the panda itself isn't gendered because, in fact, men experience perinatal mood disorders as well. Indeed, and that's um, an even better kept secret, isn't it? Um, do you know, the, the really interesting thing about that, and, and I'll, I'll throw some numbers in here, I know it's not, not very sexy, but I think the numbers are really important. That, um, and let's just talk about postnatal depression just to narrow it down for, for now. But one in seven women we, we know are going to have an experience of postnatal depression. That's a lot, a lot of women. And, and, and in Victoria, there's 75,000 births a that's year. Right. So one in seven of those 75,000. It's a it's it's a it's a lot, isn't it? Um, but then, when you add to it the, the the father's experience, so in fact, if we were sitting around this time last year, the the data we would have been using was one in twenty men in that postnatal period are likely to experience depression of their own. Um, but in fact, the Australian Institute of Family Studies came out earlier this year with with new data that's saying one in ten men. So of those seventy thousand births in in Victoria each year, where we we know that one in seven women and one in ten. Um, fathers there are going to be impacted by that's that's just depression with anxiety we um there's not not good data around with anxiety but the uh, expectation is that it's actually even a higher higher level there. so so at least uh seven thousand seven and a half thousand yep. men and maybe ten thousand women will get new episodes of mood disorder associated with pregnancy and birth every year. Yeah, and what, what, what we know so clearly is that in some cases that's that's a low-level disorder. It's still a significant disorder, though. It's yes. not, we're, we're not talking about... I loved your distinction before, the capital D, the, the small d. We're not talking about I'm having a bad day. We all have bad days, and, and it's pretty easy with small, a small baby there to have a day that hasn't quite rolled out the way you'd expected it to and be feeling a bit glum. But but we're talking about about a clinical, a clinical depression, and that's a very, very large population and what we're so aware of in our work because we're talking on a daily basis with men and women um, across the country in our case uh, that it's not just the impact for that parent it's the impact for that newborn child and in fact the impact the relationship between mum dad and the and the baby at such an important time when we're we're really really wanting to see the best possible shot at a great positive attachment. Perry what sort of impacts have you seen on relationships? Well, my, so I've worked in the western suburbs in a um, in a face-to-face context, um, and I think that it's been very, very difficult for relationships which to sustain the strain of severe mental illness in that context. I think one of the things that we don't always remember is that this period is the highest risk period for mental illness in a woman's life, and a lot of these women have never experienced. Um, any kind of mental illness in the past so it's a terrible shock not only do they have a new baby to look after and they have to you know uh, make the switch in their heads between you know being just a person and then to being a mother but then also they have to cope with this 
mental illness, which is sometimes just overwhelming. So At the same time as everybody's saying to them, you must be so happy. Mm, exactly. And so I think it's inevitable that relationships are under strain in that context. And I think that that can have lots of flow-on effects for partnerships and fathers. And, and, and then, of course, the relationship between both parents and their baby mm. is also under threat. So it's, um, it's a problem that has so many different facets and so many different consequences. It is, and also a problem that we know can really benefit from um, accessing accessing good mental health care very early on. Which I guess segues into the second half of the uh, segment. What has actually happened, Perry? Oh, this Melbourne used to be the perinatal treatment capital of the world. We really did. And when I went to conferences internationally, I was always so proud of what we had to offer women in Victoria in particular with lots and lots of outreach services and inpatient mother-baby units in particular. At one stage, Melbourne, Melbourne had more perinatal services than the whole of the UK. That's exactly right, and certainly more than the US. When I've been at conferences in America, people are just have been gobsmacked at the kinds of services that we can offer these women and their families. So for that situation to be so completely transformed in the space of all well, the last three months, I think is just tragic. So well, tell us what's happened. I will. So I'm talking about. Try not to cry. Tell oh us yeah, what's yeah. Happened. <laughs> you could probably hear I'm a little bit choked up. It's all about my emotion at the end of at the end of these kinds of services. Well, you've also been personally affected well, too, that, haven't you? Right. Your job is gone. Exactly. My job and many other people's jobs have disappeared as a consequence of the end of the National Perinatal Depression Initiative. Tell us about that. What what was it? So it was an initiative that was um, originally formulated back in 2008 by the Commonwealth Government and they committed to providing $85 million over the next five years to provide frontline screening um, and upskilling programs uh, so that all women having a baby would be able to um, be assessed for mental illness and then to access treatment services. And there were lots of other ancillary services and initiatives that went along with this, like um, education programs and um, research data into better understanding the phenomena that we witnessed. And that's all gone. So it's a very holistic approach, not just about clinical care. I think that's really right. And certainly from the perspective of the service that I previously worked at, um, we worked very closely with midwives in upskilling them in, in detecting mental illness and improving their confidence in um, caring for these women who often have more complex needs and often need a little bit more support. So... I was particularly devastated um, that this all came to an end at the end of June. So the other problem I think that we face now is that uh, it was kind of an 11th hour decision. We all hoped, really, that um, the only reasonable decision would be to extend the funding. And uh, unfortunately, the outcome of multiple lengthy negotiations was, in fact, that did not happen. So um, I think the Queensland Health Minister said it best. He said... We received a letter on June 15 telling us that $1.6 million would be taken out of this program from Queensland from June 30th. That's no way to run federal-state relations and it's no way to run a national response so to a very serious issue. So this program in Queensland, anyway, was run on $1.5 million. It's not like we're talking about a $100 million program. Oh, no, that's right. It doesn't take that much money to fund what are these very... Um, essential, in my view, very essential services that keep that keep women and their babies together, and in some cases keep them alive. Um, suicide, linked to mental health problems, is actually the leading cause of maternal death in Australia, and so we've kind of left these women high and dry. Because in fact, the, the what we call the perinatal mortality rate, which is 
the, the women that die from childbirth, from the obstetrics complications of childbirth, is now extremely low mm. in Australia uh, through good care. Yeah, that's and right. And good care over a long time. Mm. But that's now been replaced by something that, that may not be completely preventable but is certainly able to be picked up, treated, and most people will benefit enormously. Yeah, so I felt like um, we were starting to integrate mental health care into overall um, maternal health care, and, and now it's just disappeared. So. And it's such effective early intervention, isn't it, to mm. be to be getting in right at right at that that front line while, at the at the early stage of pregnancy to be engaging in um, in considering mental health in amongst the physical health. It's such a you know I'm sorry it's 2016 mm. 15 I've jumped ahead. It's a time when it's a time when we know that mental health is just important. We, we often use the analogy that if you had um, broken your arm, no one would be ignoring what was going going on. Um, it, it has implications for everything you're doing and and quite seriously I thought we had moved such a long way in understanding the importance of of mental health so that early intervention to look after mum dad and then the future relationship with the child it just seems so short-sighted to me to to be withdrawing those services at a point when we understand that this isn't just a cost right now and in lots of cases I believe the the services were really cost effective in terms of reducing hospital emissions not just um, I mean obviously it's important to reduce the impact on the individual person, their, their, their real health, but, but if you want to look just at a, a costing model, um, which is important as well, we have to, have to look at how we're going to pay for health services, it's also a cost effective activity to be um, allowing that early intervention, reducing hospital admissions that no one wants to see, particularly at a point when there's a brand new baby involved in this relationship. Well in fact, in fact um, very cleverly the way the government seems to have reduced the cost of hospital admissions is to reduce the number of hospitals offering services. That's What's happened right. Perry? Well, I'm, it's a bit of a perfect storm of funding disappearance because at the same time as the government withdrawing funding from <coughs> nearly every... Well, from every program that was funded by the NPDI, which includes my old program. Um, it also includes BATCARE, which provided a, a home visiting program for depressed mums, which was really effective. Uh, and a lot of um, access to private psychology services through the ATAPS funding, specifically for women with postpartum depression. So all of that is gone. Um, and that's my context in the western suburbs, for mostly for women who can't access private health care. But more broadly, in Victoria, we also used to have a lot of private mother-baby inpatient units and, and associated services, and they've all disappeared as well just because of the changes in the way that insurance companies interpret their responsibility to the patients who are insured. So um, these days there are no inpatient private mother-baby units available. In well, there's one at North Park in Bandura and that's it mm. in the state when there used to be three private ones and <laughs> numerous public ones. And the big problem is funding. And the problem is because babies don't have a voice, they're actually not funded. That's right. So they're considered not to have the same... Well... As far as I understand the funding par um, algorithm, babies who are there with their depressed mothers are considered to be boarders rather than patients in their own right. And so there's no um, consideration given to the services that might be needed by the baby if their mum is so depressed that she can't wake up for her baby overnight or that she needs associated support. So I think that's a real misunderstanding of the needs of mothers and babies at this point, which is so crucial. Mm. And a lot of the treatment work involves working with mothers and babies, working with 
with what we call the dyad, mm. the two together. And it's through working on the relationship that you can actually change the mental health of the mother and the babies because, of course, babies are also affected by perinatal mood disorders in their mothers. It's so important, isn't it? And, um, and we're, we're talking about... Um costs earlier uh, and it is there's always two people involved in in this care that while the baby doesn't come into the relationship with a mental illness uh, it's it's connection with its mum is going to be impacted by by her her mental health and as you say the reverse can happen that that actually generating a positive relationship between between the mother and baby at that time can be really protective in 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 the mum's the mum's for the mums and care. for the babies mm. oh certainly for yeah. the baby yeah and, and in fact in the perfect world if we have perfect fundings we'd be admitting dads as well because it's about working with the family not just about working with the individual patient so it's a it's it's a different sort of treatment model just like you were saying before that with the suicide prevention programs that it's around looking at the community and not just looking at one-on-one care this is in a way a sort of microcosm of that Can, can I come back to your earlier conversation about about um, the importance of working in the community and and stigma that I think there is still such a barrier to to women and men seeking seeking help for perinatal mental illness because of the stigmas of, of mental illness. So uh, certainly a, a core part of our work at Panda is is continuing to raise raise awareness. And um, I think you know, look if there's one message we have, it's the importance of of people t- speaking out about their um, about their own experience when they're comfortable to do that and um, we often talk about you know genuinely asking a new mum a new dad that question of how are you going and that and he- hearing the response and that that people are still still not talking about it in a way that um, you might talk about mastitis I reckon it's uh, and it, it needs to be dealt with as as commonly and um, we we know so so well and I'm, I'm that perinatal depression and anxiety will impact right across the community. It's not a particular sector of the community. It's an unusual health, in, um, health condition in that sense that it really doesn't have socioeconomic boundaries. It's, it's right across the community and I know um, from our phone lines clearly our phone line, it's a, it's a, we run a, a national perinatal depression and anxiety helpline. It's a totally confidential service but I can tell you that the, the professional groups that we hear from it's a university professor or it's a, you know, a neuroscientist it's, it's across the board right um, right through to, and there's a nice lead into a later conversation, but certainly our conversations are also with newly arrived um, refugees, people who are struggling to find a place, uh, but also struggling with their own perinatal mental illness. So I'm struck on a daily basis from the work we do about how broad-reaching uh, the, the issue is in our community. Terry, we're going to go for a... a break in a minute but do you want to just give us the contact number? Yes if I could do that that would be fantastic. So the the, uh, helpline is 1300 726 306 but I'll also let you know um, panda.org.au and howisdadgoing.org.au so howisdadgoing is a website specifically looking at at dad's issues but um, they're both both a good spot to check in with. 3 triple R Uh, now, it's my great pleasure, let me say I'm absolutely thrilled to uh, introduce on uh, the phone Professor Louise Newman from the Royal Women's Hospital. Uh, Louise has a um, number of hats. She's a professor of, uh, of uh, perinatal psychiatry, child psychiatrist, and also um, we'll be segueing, segueing into our second segment with Louise talking about... Uh, 
asylum seeker, children, mental health and refugee children, mental health. Louise, are you there? Louise, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, uh, I can. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Louise. Um, Pleasure. You've been listening to what we've been talking about uh, perinatal services and, and what's actually happened in Victoria or what's not happening. What's going on? Look, I think it's um, it's really very, very serious and I guess the, the concerns are obviously in the short term in terms of the, um, the actual cuts and what that means um, in terms of service provision on the ground. But what in some ways concerns me is the, the long-term impacts of a really retrograde um, step and it's very difficult to have that conversation with our politicians I guess about the long term implications of not supporting women, families and um, infants in these critical developmental times and I, I, I think the evidence about this is really so strong that um, the impact obviously on the, the, the mother and, and uh, co-parent and fathers but also on the baby and, and infant development and what this, terms, this means in terms of late developmental issues and mental health problems so it really speaks I think to this debate that we have to keep highlighting again and again it seems that early intervention is not just doing things in the short term it has a huge payoff in terms of the burden of mental health problems across the community so, so this is really um, very concerning so the couple of million dollars the um Minister for Women is probably saving across the whole country um, well apart from paying for probably half an hour of caring for the children, the children in detention when we get on to that it's uh, actually going to cost a lot more money on um, services for children during school years and later years and then well, during adult life Yes, being a bit um, provocative the Minister for Women I think has shown that he in many ways fails to understand the issues for women and families and particularly for children uh, yes, well, I don't think you get much disagreement in the studio here and probably not in the listenership either. Uh, one of the other issues that he's struggling with is uh, the other reason we asked you on the show, um, the whole issue around um, the effect of uh, the refugee experience and in particular in our, in our own experience here in Australia, families in detention and then having no security as far as their status in Australia, the effect that this has on, on children. Can, can you tell us what you've discovered about this? Yes, I'll, I'll summarise really what um, you know, a group of us have looked at, um, sadly, over the last um, over 15 years now, um, when we looked at children and, and families who are in detention in Australia in the first round um, of mandatory detention, when we had um, children in detention for sometimes very long uh, periods, as in years in detention. So we did a series of, of studies, um, difficult to perform, obviously, difficult to get access, but we certainly looked at rates of um, mental health problems, anxiety, depression being very common, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the whole issue of the impacts of parents who were detained and depressed and their capacity to parent in these environments, which, um, if you think back to the days of Woomera, Baxter and so on, were particularly harsh, depriving, and in many ways very cruel environments. 
So from a psychiatric and mental health point of view, it's not surprising um, that we found very high rates, extraordinarily high rates of distress and diagnosable mental health problems in this population. And again, the issue of long-term implications. These are children, some of whom were detained from birth for the first three to four years of their lives uh, in environments where there was no security of attachment and they're often exposed in detention to traumatic experiences. So actually the rates of mental health problems in these children um, were um, contributed to by their experiences in um, their appalling um, detention environments. So, so we're actually causing mental health problems in yes, families? Yes, I believe so. My interpretation is there's a combination of factors. Of course, we've got people who've been previously exposed uh, to trauma, as in um, in their countries of origin and during their flight, the journey of seeking asylum is particularly perilous and traumatic. And then we, um, if we see it this way, re-traumatise people or contribute to their trauma by the way in which um, we have chosen in this country, which is unique in the world, to treat um, these people. So the, the issue is that um, particularly long-term uh, detention contributes in a direct way to mental deterioration. That was the first round of detention. We then, pleasingly, had some positive reforms. I think there were several inquiries around um, uh, that time that led to some reform and actual policy statements that, that saying that children should only ever be detained as a matter of last resort. Uh, but very sadly, we've come the 360 degrees uh, in more recent times with, of course, um, all so-called unauthorised um, arrivals, largely the boat arrivals, uh, being detained as a matter of first resort and on offshore locations where there are serious concerns about um, the safety of those environments, but particularly for women and children. So in that sense, we've come back to where we started, which um, for those of us who've been um, in this area for a while is this very disappointing. Uh, so we're seeing again uh, children with attachment difficulties, depression, traumatic symptoms, and we're again detaining babies. Um, so in Victoria, in the Mitre, in Broadmeadows, um, we have a group of families um, with infants who have been born in detention. Um, these women were often pregnant um, on uh, Nauru um, and suffered a variety of very traumatic experiences, have now found themselves um, in Victoria with babies um, who are, um, uh, in, in essence, uh, prisoners. And I think the impact on these families and the mothers on having a baby in these circumstances is quite devastating. So we're seeing high rates of, I mean, what we call... Um, postnatal depression but it's actually a combination of very severe post-traumatic stress disorder depression and terrible um, feelings of failure as a parent and guilt um, that they've ended up in this situation where their baby is detained. I couldn't, can't imagine a situation where you'd actually feel more helpless. Did, did I think that's part of the issue that these people have um, very little um, that they can do to influence their situation or to parent in the way 
they would like to. And I think it's um, very, very concerning that we've got back to a state where government seemingly finds this acceptable um, rather than look at alternatives um, in terms of community-based support and so-called community detention where people are still obviously subject to immigration and, and supervised. Um, but the, uh, in those cases where we have had some families released, the improvement in people's well-being and capacity to parent and infant development following on from that is huge. So I think it's um, absolutely essential that, that we continue this sort of advocacy that, um, that we're involved in. Wondered if, sorry, Professor Newman, um, I just wondered if I could ask you a question about the access that those women in MITRE in Victoria have to mental health services. I think that's part of the issue, that there is currently um, no specialist perinatal or infant mental health uh, service provided um, for these women and families. Some are being seen for opinions or clin clinical assessment externally. So um, I'm certainly seeing these women at um, the women's hospital. The babies who uh, pretty much universally have failure to thrive, which is not surprising in many ways, are being seen at the children's hospital. And occasionally there are some uh, have been some admissions um, of these mothers to perinatal units. So for lots of reasons, that's very a very difficult um, thing to do. And one of the reasons being is that the system insists that these women are guarded, uh, often with three to four guards per mother and infant, which is very hard and raises all sorts of issues in a clinical setting. Three so or four actual, guards? Yes. Male or female? Um, often um, well, mixed, I must say, but sometimes um, all male. Uh, when I was working at Mother Baby Unit at Monash, I um, insisted that uh, these guards were not allowed into the unit, that they waited outside. This is a locked unit. Um, and that I didn't see four people being necessary to guard a three-month infant and a very depressed woman. But that's, that's the system, so it's very hard to actually provide, provide that in a safe way and considering other patients and so on. So the services are, are minimal. There are some volunteers, um, some infant mental health um, volunteers have been going in um, to the uh, centre, but in terms of what the um, company that provides health services for detainees, IHMS, actually provides, it's minimal and by, by all standards, um, I think, inadequate. And this is, this is a great concern. There is a, certainly a visiting um, psychiatrist who I think goes every three or four weeks, and, but it's looking after a whole range of, of people there. And I think the political issues are so complex that the system is not very willing to accommodate um, uh, what really would be a basic standard of care for people, which puts clinicians who uh, work um, for IHMS and for that company in a very um, compromised position, in my view, where they're not able to work effectively or provide care. But the bottom line is um, these uh, women and families are not getting adequate treatment. Well, I know as, as a clinician I've... Uh thought about uh, work like that and, and every time I think about it I just feel completely overwhelmed. What could I possibly be allowed to do that would make any significant difference? Quite. Um, the College of uh, Psychiatrists is um, putting out shortly, we've been working on a, an ethical guideline for um, fellows who may be thinking of wanting to, to help in this situation but essentially 
pointing out the limitations and the disempowerment um, that clinicians face working within a system that's fundamentally very damaging to people. I think it's a quite a complex issue. Some clinicians like myself have chosen not to work um, internally in that system. I've previously been an advisor to um, the Department of Immigration um, about what they could do better and I think um, you know, fair to say that they chose not to follow the advice that, <laughs> that that we gave them, which is their prerogative, of course. But these are complex ethical ethical issues um, and tragic when we think about the number of clinicians who would genuinely want to contribute um, to helping these very vulnerable people. Uh, but if the system conspires against that and makes it uh, difficult, then we have to think of other ways uh, in which we might be able to provide help. I wanted to ask you another question, Professor Newman. Is there, is it true that recently um, the legislation has been changed so that doctors and nurses and other professionals who work with this group of people are explicitly disallowed from voicing any kinds of concerns in public? Yes, um, it is. It's the so-called Border Force Act, which came in at the beginning of July. And actually, just in saying what I've said to you this morning about my knowledge of what is happening in the centres, my concerns about the system and my concerns about the welfare of, of people within the system, I'm breaking that law. Um, I'm well aware of that. Um, so technically, um, I could be charged um, with that, um, and I face two years' imprisonment. So the law actually um, covers any um, clinicians or people who have um, knowledge of the system who speak uh, about that system. We're actually um, in law not allowed to do that and particularly concerning um, reporting of things like um, child abuse or concerns about um, child welfare to authorities as mandatory reporters um, is in um, according to the way this law legislation is actually worded um, illegal so the law actually um, as it stands uh, is very effective in, in trying to and maybe um, that's one of the consequences or intended consequences in silencing people, in raising concerns. But what it means is that clinicians, um, again, it's another barrier to practising in the way that um, we need to, both ethically and professionally. So it's, it's very serious. Now, whether anyone actually gets charged is another matter. I don't, uh, the Department have, have said that, and the uh, Prime Minister have said that this is not the intent but I really think that's um, that's not the point. The point being there should not be... Um, What's the point in having a law you're not going to enforce? Yeah, yeah, clinicians need to be uh, able to practice ethically and appropriately in all circumstances, as we might do in a prison, for example. Um, but immigration, um, the detention centres are essentially trying to operate as closed institutions. We're talking with Professor Louise Newman about... Uh, the uh, mental health of asylum seeker children. Louise, during the break we were just talking about what we can do. We thought if um, you, you end up going to jail, Kent who's operating the mm. panel today is going to cook, a, cook you a cake. <laughs> Thank 
Thank you. I'm sure I would be well defended. <laughs> um, yes, it is important that the you know clinicians and the profession thinks about how we um, can respond. There's recently, as in last week, been um, discussion with those of us involved with the um, AMA, AMA president, about the issues across the colleges. We're certainly seeing a lot of concern about the situation and thinking about the best ways of providing advocacy. There's now a group called Doctors for Refugees um, who have a Facebook presence um, and are collecting, um, I think, a lot of expertise across the um, profession um, and are in the business of um, providing as much as we can second opinions about people's clinical situation and advocacy in terms of trying to look at how we can get people within the system appropriate locations of treatment and, and care. So they're a group, I think, um, important um, to be involved in for people who want to actually um, do something. Uh, we, and it's all um, voluntary um, at the moment. The AMA, um, as I said, has a group um, and the College of Psychiatrists, we have um, a group um, of advising the President about um, the ethical issues and the professional issues. So I think there's a lot of activity at the moment um, and important that um, we do try and keep involved in this as we're moving towards the election. I doubt very much we'll see changes until we know the outcome of the election. Um, but I think uh, the profession certainly has a very important role here, not necessarily in being involved in the broader political arguments unless we're interested, but we can stick to our area of expertise, which is about um, how health services and mental health services should be provided to vulnerable people um, and what we do know about the damage of this sort of treatment to people. Ultimately, you know, we'll all be paying um, for the damage that we cause and I think we have a view on how we can um, be both um, more humane but also prevent some of this damage, particularly to the detained children. Well, certainly politically these sorts of decisions always end up coming to bite you on the bum in the future. So it seems yeah. make, makes no sense to me politically. Just interests me though, as a as a also as a group therapy psychiatrist and with an interest in sort of group responses, the difference in the response in Europe to the response in Australia to much smaller number of uh, people arriving by boat. What what can we do in the community to change this? We can see how powerful the impact of one image had in, on. Uh, in changing the European response. What can we do here in Australia? Yes, I think um, that's why this issue of being able to speak out about things and talk about the real human face of what we're seeing is so important. Uh, I think we do need to have that discussion at a community level. We need to harness people's compassion. Um, I think in Europe what we've seen, and to a certain extent here, um, is really shock and horror at what, what's been going on to vulnerable people and children, um, in this case the Syrians. Um, what's interesting though is that this is happening on our doorstep and we're doing it as well. Uh, we're doing it in Victoria. We have you know, um, appalling situations on Nauru, uh, where you know recent reports um, have highlighted um, just how many children are sexually assaulted there. Um, women that I see have 
all been sexually assaulted uh, on Nauru. These are, so this is very close, and yet that's been very hidden. And I think one of the issues is how to break down that, the out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality by publicising, by raising the stories. And we do need community involvement. This is not just for professionals to do. So there is a, a Melbourne meeting for Melbourne people um, on, I think, uh, October the 24th at Melbourne Town Hall, organised by a group, um, Grandmothers for Refugees, who are raising the issues about the detention of children as concerned people in the community. Um, there'll be various, um, I'll be speaking, various people will be speaking about the issues, but I think what's more important is that this is people who are genuinely wanting to say Australia could be doing things differently and much better, and in the face of the very small numbers of people that we're talking about, our response um, has been very difficult to understand. Um, Europe, uh, I think, other than pockets of you know the far right, racist um, minority who are always present, um, have shown that people do have the capacity left in them for compassion in the face of these things. Yes, it's from halfway around the planet. It seems to be an amazingly compassionate response compared to what we're used to seeing here. Yes, and I think our politicians on both sides um, have questions to answer about um, how this issue has been used in such a way to uh, really promote anxiety and xenophobia. Yes, certainly a great concern. Um, what can our listeners actually do? People who are listening who, who are a bit concerned having listened to this segment, what, what can they do today? I think um, getting involved with some of the the advocacy and and groups and learning more about the current concerns is really important. Um, Chill out. Um, Children out of detention um, um, are a very important group doing work in this in this area. They have um, their online doctors for refugees for um, medical people for those in the colleges and professional bodies. All of um, the the major medical colleges and the um, AP. PS, um, nurses all have um, interest groups doing lobbying in this area. I think it's very important to connect um, with those with those groups. And if people, you know, don't necessarily want to do that, I think even as a concerned citizen, uh, letting the politicians know that there are concerns about this issue, um, and that um, I think um, this is not a party political issue because both parties, in a sense, have the same policy particularly the um, ideas about uh, offshore detention, uh, I think leading into the election it's, it's important just to raise the issue. So very simple things. Uh, attending some of the, the public uh, meetings I think are very, uh, are very interesting um, and having that access. It is about a voice, I think. Um, rather than being bystanders and just watching things that we're all concerned about and feeling powerless and not knowing what to do, I think in the current climate being an observer and being a bystander is actually not a very helpful um, position. And, and it's exactly that, what the government yeah. response is designed to foster. In exactly, us. yeah. So what I'd suggest to people who are listening is um, just get online, find your local MP's webpage and even just send them an email or call their office and uh, just talk to them about your concerns about both these issues because both issues concern groups in the community that really don't get much of a voice and we don't like to think about children being adversely affected as if this three-year-old Syrian boy was the first child in a boat 
when there's thousands of people that have died in boats, a lot of them would have been children. But, of course, once people actually see it, then people get concerned about it. Well, thank you very much, uh, Louise, for coming on the show. It really has been wonderful to uh, have you, and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure. Um, you've been listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. Thank you for listening this week. Um, sorry, it's a bit of a uh, heavy show, but uh, really important issues, and uh, Perry Parham and I will be back uh, uh, on a show with you soon. Thank you very much. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R. 102.7. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events, and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.